Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sandra Taylor. It's uh, February 15th, 2019. We're at the Nicholson Library at Linfield College. Uh, and Sandra, we're going to start you off by asking um, how you got interested in environmental sustainability and social responsibility. I started my um, corporate career uh, working uh, for a commodity chemical company, a very large, the fourth largest chemical company in the world. And it was a, a very strong brand, a British company. And so I learned a lot about working in the environment, working for a company that was essentially a polluter. And, uh, but it was a company that wanted to be above, um, you know, the com above commodity chemicals per se. It wanted to position itself and its, its policies above and beyond regulations. Um, and we worked along with uh, several other companies that were similarly situated, um, DuPont, Dow, on something called responsible care. And it was really my first exposure to uh, working on uh, responsibility uh, in terms of environmental um, regulations and environmental policy and strategy. So that's, that's really how I started. In addition, that same company had uh, fairly significant investments in South Africa. And this was a time when the, the country, the world really was debating uh, sanctions against South Africa. And so we were trying to navigate our way through what should we do about that and should we sign on to the Sullivan Principles, which is an old, um, probably one of the first codes of conduct for social responsibility. So both on the environmental side, responsible care and South Africa sanctions and how we could position the company and the brand to be more responsible in that market. That's how I got started. So let's back up for a second and talk about your education and kind of how you got to that point before we go forward. So tell us about your education and, and how you ended up at this large chemical company in the first place. Well, I, um, I went to a small college. As I was walking around today, I was saying how, and I, I see there are a lot of students, uh, high school students who are looking at Linfield. And I uh, recalled I went to a small college, Colorado Women's College, and I majored in French. And that really got me uh, set on an international career. Uh, from there, I went to law school and I studied international law. My first job was um, as a diplomat, and I was working at the U.S. Mission to the United Nations in New York. And I was a junior diplomat, but I was assigned to um, a delegation that was negotiating law of the sea. Um, and that's kind of how, that's probably how I got interested in um, natural, the natural environment. But um, it was, you know, it was a treaty. And so it was my legal background that helped me um, position myself in that way. So then you're at this, at this large chemical company that's, that's trying to do better. So what about the initial efforts intrigued you the most? What, what made you interested in doing this going forward? Well, you know, at this large chemical company, um, my job was really public affairs, public relations, uh, government relations. I was not 
I didn't have a scientific background. You know, I majored in French. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't like I was able to make decisions about where the company ought to be in terms of uh, its environmental positioning. But what I did do, one of my major roles and accomplishments was developing a community advisory panel. So part of Responsible Care, this initiative was building more um, relationships with the community, helping the community understand what was going on inside the factory, you know, behind those walls, what was, you know, being released in the air. They saw the, the plumes and the smokestacks. Uh, so, you know, really building um, ways for the community to come into the company uh, to get better understanding. These are really our neighbors. Um, so that was really the role, the biggest role I played at the time. It was both on the policy side and then building a community outreach. And then from there, as you as you kind of progressed in your career, you ended up at some other really big corporations. Uh, tell us how you kind of how you made the leap to the next role and and what your role was when you got there. So I was working for this chemical company and um, one of um, you know in public relations communications. And one of my biggest challenges doing community outreach was the fact that we, um, we made the product that was used in the Oklahoma City bomb. Mm -hmm. Not that we were responsible for that, um, but we were sued by the families mm -hmm. um, of the victims for negligence, saying we should have done something to our fertilizer uh, to prevent it from being made into a bomb. And I spent a lot of time in the media, talking to the media, it wasn't what I anticipated, it wasn't what I trained for. And so I was getting a lot of public attention. Mm -hmm. And um, as a result of that, I was recruited uh, by Kodak, Eastman Kodak Company, to come and work for them in communications and public affairs. And that's how I made the transition. And with Kodak, it was, I was vice president of worldwide public affairs. So again, my international experience came into play and um, was a great opportunity to travel to lots of different places. And um, meanwhile, you know, I would travel and visit wineries too mm -hmm. uh, when I was in all these places. But essentially, Kodak was building, um, was expanding. You know, Kodak was a company that had been around for de decades, really almost over a century. Mm -hmm. And you could find Kodak film in most places, but we didn't have a physical presence in a lot of countries. And the company was expanding mm -hmm. uh, its, its uh, physical presence in China, in Brazil, in India. And so part of my job was to develop um, communications and com uh, community outreach and public affairs strategies to support our expansion and growth in those markets. Give me an example of, of a strategy you were using at that time to, that was successful in that, in that effort. Well, we, um, well, as we, I, for one thing, I had to just build a team of people um, in all these different markets. Um, you know, people didn't understand what, again, Kodak was a chemical company. Most people don't know that. I mean, chemicals, mm -hmm. film was, was made from chemicals. Um, it, the company had a very strong brand, a very strong family-oriented brand. Um, but we needed to, again, build some relationships in communities, figure out how to um, be ph philanthropic uh, and be socially responsible in the communities where we were expanding our business. So identifying community needs and markets in China and in Brazil and how the company could help mm -hmm. fulfill some of those needs. And so 
Uh, in Brazil, for example, we did work in the Amazon um, supporting uh, better environmental strategies there, making contributions to uh, projects to uh, preserve some of the, the wild spaces, we call mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then I also did some work um, for the company in, um, in Africa where, with the African Wildlife uh, Fund, really, again, uh, preserving beautiful places because photography and tourism went together. And sure. so it was always looking at how can we uh, support conservation in spaces and places where people um, that were maybe threatened, where wildlife and species were threatened, but where it was in our interest as a photography company mm -hmm. and a company that supported tourism to support some of those. So I assume at this point in, these, in those two positions especially, you, you had to deal with quite a, I assume quite a bit of conflict and quite a, bit of, quite a few people who were doubtful of your company's good intentions. So what, were the, what was the general attitude and how did you overcome some of that? Uh, negativity. Yeah. yeah, well, I mean, it seems like in every everything I've done, all my work, it's always been, I mean, I, I talk a lot about stakeholder engagement. You know, occasionally I, I'm teaching and I teach about stakeholder outreach and how to, how to build relationships with stakeholders and identify what their concerns are and how, and, and how the company is affecting what their priorities are and how we could build some, um, you know, common ground. Uh, between those. So I have dealt with environmental activists, um, obviously because, you know, all of these companies were, um, had some issues, uh, if, you know, pollution, other kinds of community issues. So dealing with environmental activists, uh, you know, being a, a philanthropist, uh, the com these companies were great uh, in terms of corporate giving and identifying where we could have the most impact in our in our contributions and our philanthropic dollars and the foundation so i was also overseeing the foundation at kodak mm -hmm. and had lots of requests um, and actually a lot of concerns because you couldn't actually you can't always money isn't always the answer mm -hmm. uh, to some of these conflicts and sometimes it's just listening and being willing to try to work out some some uh, common solutions. Mm -hmm. And so from there you were, I assume, recruited to Starbucks at that yes. point. So tell me a little about that transition. Yeah, so this was an interesting um, re um, transition for me. I had been working on, uh, as I said, community outreach and dealing with environmental activists, but we never called it corporate responsibility at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, some, it was sometimes called corporate citizenship, um, so it was the, both the foundation, it was, I was doing, managing environmental communications at Kodak, dealing with, you know, external uh, nonprofits, either the ones that wanted funding from us or the ones who were angry with us, <laughs> um, and also given the work I had done with, um, with the Oklahoma City bombing, really dealing with um, crisis, you know, that was a major crisis for the, my first company. And Starbucks was really looking for somebody with that background. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't looking necessarily for somebody who understood uh, agriculture or sustainable agriculture, but rather somebody who could deal with um, kind of difficult publics. This was after the WTO riots in mm -hmm. Seattle. So the World Trade Organization had, its, its, uh, had a meeting in Seattle and there were major riots. Um, 
and we kind of knew that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I was at Kodak at the time, um, but for Starbucks, a lot of the, the protesters and the rioters crashed through their store windows all over Seattle. And they were concerned that this was, you know, action against Starbucks. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was much bigger than that and much broader than that. But the fact is, a lot of these activists felt that Starbucks had become the sim symbol of globalization. Mm -hmm. And um, so Starbucks was also trying to f figure out how can we position ourselves, our programs, our business, and our brand in a way to meet some of these concerns. And so I came up on their radar, you know, through recruiters, uh, given my background. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great opportunity for me. What were the, what were like the first, when they hired you and they had kind of, I assume they kind of created a position with you in mind or you, or you fit this position as the first, uh, the first person to hold it. So what were the first things they wanted you to deal with? So at so Starbucks at the time had uh, a team of people mm -hmm. in their corporate social responsibility okay. department. And this team was composed of uh, people who were in the corporate foundation, who were giving you know, resources for good causes, uh, community affairs. Uh, at the time, community affairs at Starbucks looked a little bit more like local store marketing <laughs> than community affairs. Um, but so there was a team and there was an environmental a team of a uh, small team working on environmental policy, but it was a, a team that was rather isolated. Um, it was the company was very successful, mm -hmm. and so they had a nice budget. But they were kind of over here in a corner doing good work, but they were totally divorced from the business. And so my job was to come in and figure out how to integrate what they were doing into the company's business strategy for a lot of different reasons, but also the CEO was just concerned that um, this should be, maybe we weren't doing, maybe they weren't doing enough. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot going on at the time uh, against co uh, coffee growers, mm -hmm. coffee roasters. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the time when the commodity price of coffee had plummeted and coffee's traded on exchanges. Mm -hmm. It's one of the few uh, you know, non-financial uh, instruments that are, that's traded on the, and the price of coffee fluctuates. And the coffee farmer is paid pretty much based on the market price. Uh, so the price had dropped very dramatically. Uh, the fair trade activists were very vocal about, you know, the, the plight of the coffee farmer. And it was really sad that they, some of them couldn't even recoup their costs. Mm. Um, because of the commodity price of coffee. And so they were, um, some of the organizations like Oxfam and Fairtrade were organizing against coffee roasters, mm -hmm. including Starbucks. Meanwhile, Starbucks is a company that had, pri had pride in, it, in its strategy and its policies and values in support of coffee farmers, but still they were being criticized mm -hmm. and beat up, frankly. Mm -hmm by the activists. So my, my first big job was to figure out how to placate the activists. Mm -hmm. and, um, and essentially, it wasn't about placating, you know, looking at, you know, what are their concerns? How legitimate are their concerns? Mm -hmm. uh, should we be looking at something deep, more deeply and differently? And so that's what I did. I started traveling to coffee regions, which uh, might the people in my position or my role had not done before just to see on the ground what's really going on with coffee farmers in Guatemala and Costa Rica 
in Ethiopia and in Rwanda and just trying to understand how we could be how we could be a better purchaser of their products and to treat them as suppliers as valued suppliers mm -hmm. um, so that was my that was my job and uh, it was it was interesting it was I had not, I didn't know a lot about agriculture I hadn't I traveled a lot globally but I hadn't traveled to most of these places um, but just to understand what the conditions were for coffee farmers mm -hmm. uh, for those communities and how we could help uh, fulfill some of those and at the same time figuring out you know were we paying a fair price for the mm -hmm. coffee Sure. Interesting. So then tell me about Sustainable Business International and how that came about. Well, I worked for Starbucks for several years and like many of us who worked for Starbucks in the 2000, between 2000 and 2010, uh, we were burnt out. We were growing. We were opening seven stores a day somewhere in the world. I was traveling constantly. I was living in Seattle and I didn't even actually get to know Seattle or enjoy Seattle until I left Starbucks because <laughs> I would be, I'd spend four days traveling to three cities in China, come back home for a day, have meetings, go to Miami or Atlanta or Paris or Berlin, wherever we were opening stores or, you know, it was just, it was exciting, but it was exhausting. Mm -hmm. um, so we were both um, supporting, so it wasn't just about the coffee farmer, we were also building community programs and corporate responsibility programs in the communities where we had stores. So wherever we opened a new store, we wanted to have uh, a community program, a community outreach, uh, a CSR initiative in Paris or in Miami or in Berlin or Dalian or you know wherever wow. so that was that was pretty intense and then of course there was all the work traveling to sure. coffee growing regions so um, so I was kind of and I was part of the senior team so the other unique thing about my role at Starbucks that many other uh, my colleagues at other companies didn't have. I was literally, I was a corporate officer and I was part of the senior team of the company. And so, you know, sitting in the room for all major business decisions and, and identifying what were the, the, what were the sustainability or environmental risk or social risk for the, any of these business decisions and what could my team do to help position us you know, positively sure. and make sure our brand, because our brand was all about responsibility, um, to make sure that our brand was authentic. So I was pretty exhausted after doing that for quite a few years. Um, and at the same time, I had a lot of companies coming to meet me in Seattle. How did you do this? How did you build? Because I built a big team mm -hmm. and we were very successful. It was high profile and we were literally integrated into the company's brand and business strategy. So people would come to meet with me from different companies, different industries, wanting to know how I did this. Some of them were companies that were partners of Starbucks, like we had stores in store at mm -hmm. Target or in hotels, and I'd meet with them. And I finally decided there was probably a business in this, you know, a consulting business that I could leave and you know maybe have a little bit more of a life <laughs> and uh, you know a little bit less travel and start to um, consult with companies in a variety of sectors that needed advice on how to build 
uh, strategic uh, corporate responsibility. So that's when I started my consulting business, mm -hmm. Sustainable Business International, and um, had an opportunity to help a, a variety of companies and, and actually learn a lot about a variety of sure. industries. Sure. Did you find in your early days, start when you started, that many companies were coming to you with a similar problem or similar concern or were in a similar situation or were you dealing with kind of all over the map? Well I was kind of dealing with all over the map. It was interesting at the time a lot of companies would come to me and say we'd like to have an employee volunteerism program because we had one of those at Starbucks mm -hmm. and could you help us organize that? So you know I'm a consultant and of course you say yes right you want the business um, but then I'd always ask them well what's going on in your supply chain? You know, what, what are some of your environmental challenges? And those are mo much more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I found that some of the companies, the people who approached me would either be the corporate foundation, the, the social responsibility team, mm -hmm. and they were disconnected from procurement or disconnected from the supply chain. And so they actually didn't know or weren't empowered to make those, but I would just push them mm -hmm. because I felt like you know, it was one thing to develop a program that looked good when maybe there was something embarrassing possibly going on in their supply chain. Sure. So, um, and then occasionally then of course companies would come to me and say, please help us figure out how to integrate sustainability into our cocoa supply chain. So I had some clients in the cocoa business because you know, they understood the similarities between that and coffee and cocoa comes from also from some very uh, poor regions of developing countries and, um, and there were some health issues, HIV AIDS issues in West Africa where cocoa principally comes from. I mean there's cocoa that's produced all over but evidently the best cocoa comes from uh, Ghana and the Ivory Coast and there were a lot of issues, mm -hmm. issues with child labor. So there were some, uh, some strong similarities to some of the issues in coffee, in agricultural uh, supply chains. And so that was a great opportunity for my business. Mm -hmm. was, there, did, did, was there like one key piece of information that you would have wanted them to take away? Was there one thing that most companies needed to know in order to make this work? Well, you know, one of the things I, I always say, and I still say that, you know, companies often will say, well, what should be our signature giving program? You know, what should our foundation be mm -hmm. or charity be, be doing? And I would always, you know, um, urge them and caution them to look at their supply chain. So like, look at what your product from raw material to the end of life, you know, what are all the environmental issues along that mm -hmm. value chain? Sometimes it's called a value chain. And what are the social issues in that value chain? Where are the products being made? Who's making them? What's happening in those communities? What are the emissions? You know, what's the effluent? What are all the issues that happen along that chain? If you just develop solutions to those issues and not think about being charitable, you know, put that money into developing solutions to issues along your supply chain. Mm -hmm. So that was always my advice, um, mm -hmm. to really start by let's map your supply chain and figure out what's going on sure. in, your, in your products. Was there a particular success story that you're proudest of or uh, a company that you needed a way more help than they realized that you were able to kind of turn around? Or 
Well, I don't really talk much about specific clients. That's, you, don't, you don't have to name them. I'm <laughs> yeah. just curious if there's one. Uh, that, that but yeah, I mean, there were, I'm, interestingly, in the high tech business, which I didn't, didn't expect because I really was, you know, going after companies either uh, in the food and beverage space mm -hmm. because that's what I felt like I knew a lot about. But um, for a specific high tech company, helping them think through and understand where their products were being made, um, what was happening in the factories that they didn't, they didn't necessarily control. They didn't have a sustainability manager. Mm -hmm. And when I would ask who oversees sustainability and worker conditions in your factories, they would say, oh, the factory manager, who typically was not the right person because that person you know, is under a lot of pressure to deliver mm -hmm. the products at a certain price mm -hmm. and at, on a certain deadline. Mm -hmm. um, so to help them understand that they needed um, a sustainability manager at a high enough level, mm -hmm. um, I felt that was a big success for me too. So you mentioned earlier that when you were traveling you were also exploring wine, so let's talk a little bit about wine and, and how you first became interested, at, interested in it personally and professionally. Yeah, so I kind of had my, um, I call it my wine epiphany. I was um, working my very first job actually as a diplomat I was working in um, Geneva, mm -hmm. uh, and on the weekends, my European colleagues would say, long weekends, they'd say, oh, come with us, we're gonna go to France nearby. I mean, France and Italy were very close to, to Switzerland. And so I just remember the first time we went to um, Beaune and Dijon and Beaujolais, Burgundy, the Burgundy region. And we, they knew, they had connections, or they had been done this before. Mm -hmm. And we would visit uh, vineyards and wineries. Sometimes if it's a small operation, we'd sit in the kitchen mm -hmm. and we'd you know, taste their wines. We'd talk about the challenges of the growing period. Uh, we would talk about um, their excitement over you know, a new vintage. Mm -hmm. And um, I had never experienced this. I was, so my first discovery was just how welcoming they were mm -hmm. to us. And, um, and you know, we would have a big breakfast in the morning and then we'd get some uh, bread and cheese and water, put that in the car and we literally would travel all day you know, to different mm -hmm. wineries. And then at night, we'd go to a local village restaurant and we'd have a really delicious dinner. And you know, we'd, have, we'd start with champagne as an aperitif, and then we'd have a different wine with each course. And often these would be um, older vintages of some of the wines that we had tasted you know, on our travels during the day. And I had never experienced that. I, mean, I actually, I mean, I didn't know that much about wine at the time. You know, I'd go to diplomatic dinners and we'd have wine, but I'd never had the opportunity to really you know, see the landscapes, to meet the people. And I just, I kind of fell in love with this, you know, the way I describe this tantalizing mix of, of food and culture and people. Mm -hmm. And um, so that was it for me. I was sold on wine and I really wanted to, um, to learn more about the geography, the geology. It wasn't just the tasting of the wine, mm -hmm. it was, the people and the food. And so from that point on, this, that became my hobby. Uh, whenever I traveled for Kodak or Starbucks, or um, I would always 
you know, if, if it was in a wine region, I'd tack on, you know, time mm -hmm. to go visit wineries. Um, with, Starb with Kodak, for example, I spent a lot of time in South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, Kodak had disinvested during apartheid. And when the company went back into the market, the CEO gave me the job to figure out, you know, along with our regional team, uh, what should we be doing? How should we re-enter the market? You know, not the traditional way of just selling to a small white uh, minority of consumers. You know, wasn't there a potential for a larger market mm -hmm. of black consumers, middle class, growing middle class consumers? So I spent a lot of time in South Africa and always find an opportunity to go to the Cape Winelands mm -hmm. and Stellenbosch and, you know, taste the wines and just learn. I just wanted to learn everything I could about wine. Um, and then I sort of saw, because of my experience with coffee, um, I started, you know, questioning, well, what's going on in terms of sustainability in the wine industry? Um, you know, and I knew, I mean, I knew a lot about agriculture and how agriculture really contributed to soil degradation, mm -hmm. water shortages, you know, bio, affected biodiversity, all those things. And so I wanted to know if the wine industry also was, um, you know, doing the same thing. The other thing about coffee is the way you taste wine and the, the you know, there's terroir in coffee, there are different species that grow differently in different regions, some are indigenous to different regions, mm -hmm. um, and the tastes are, the tastes are very distinct. At Starbucks, we did blind tastings mm -hmm. of coffees. Uh, we had a master, a coffee master program where you learn the, the different uh, species of coffee and the soil. So all of those things I discovered were very similar to wine. So my coffee experience with my kind of long time love and hobby, I, I became a wine collector. I went to you know courses on wine. I, I did the French Wine Scholar course. All those things I did in my spare time as a hobby. And then when I got to Starbucks, it all kind of came together. <laughs> so, yeah. You mentioned your program in France. Tell me a little bit about that as you're actually getting into actual wine education and, and what you got from that. Well, the French Wine Scholar course I did in Washington, D.C., and it was like every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 3.30. And we, uh, we would study, every week we'd study a different region. And, and when I say study, we'd learn about the history, mm -hmm. uh, the geology, the terroir, the soil, and we'd taste wines. And sometimes we'd taste 20 wines in a day. I couldn't even drink wine for that entire period <laughs> because I was, you know, I mean, my palate was just shot. I couldn't, if I went to dinner, I'd have to have a cocktail or a beer or something. I couldn't drink wine um, because we didn't drink it, of course, we were tasting. And so we were also learning really learning a lot more about, you know, the techniques of tasting. But one week it would be champagne, the next week it would be Alsace. I mean, literally every single region, um, Burgundy and the Rhone, the Southern Rhone, the Northern Rhone, all of those, but the history mm -hmm. as well as the, the grapes and the terroir. So that was the French Wine Scholar course. Mm -hmm. And um, then I decided, um, yeah, after doing that course, um, that I wanted, I really wanted to do more in wine. 
but I wanted a credential. I didn't want to be a sommelier. Mm -hmm. I'm a business person. And so I decided to do um, the Wine MBA program in Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's an executive, an executive MBA, so it's not full-time. You're not there full-time, but it's a two-year program. And it's uh, three weeks at a time, six days a week. <laughs> And it was in English, mm -hmm. and the cohort, there was one other American in my group, but the others were from France, Scandinavia, Canada, Chile, Argentina, all these different places. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a business degree, you know, it was an MBA, but all of our uh, cases were wine cases. Interesting. And, um, and we traveled, the degree was from the Bordeaux School of Management, but we traveled to different regions uh, to complete our work. So we were in Adelaide, the University of South Australia. We were in uh, Sonoma, at Sonoma State, mm. uh, the, um, at UC Davis, uh, in London to learn about uh, distribution. In between, we were doing a lot of online work, and and I had and I wrote and there's a thesis mm -hmm. that's heavily weighted. And I wrote my thesis on what motivates sustainability mm. in wine supply chains. Mm -hmm. And so then I was off and running. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. Yeah. So you, you mentioned a little bit earlier about when you, you kind of had the epiphany late about what, what is going on in wine sustainability. So I'm curious, when you first started thinking about it, or first were aware of it, what, were the, what was going on? What were the big concerns that you saw uh, uh, coming down the um, road? Yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot going on, to be honest. Um, you know, there was organic. Um, so the th when I did my thesis, um, I couldn't find a lot that was written about sustainability in the wine industry. Mm -hmm. There were some academic papers that were pretty good. Even, the, when, even my studies, there was nobody, sustainability was not part of our our, our, uh, our lessons or mm -hmm. our, you know, um, and my thesis advisor was the supply chain professor at the Bordeaux School of Management because nobody was really doing much about sustainability mm -hmm. at the time. Um, but as I, so I ended up doing a lot of interviews mm -hmm. for my thesis and that's how I discovered what was going on. So New Zealand had made its commitment to mm -hmm. be 100% sustainable. Um, South Africa had long since been in, involved in sustainability for a whole variety of reasons. I, I think because of biodiversity in the Cape. The Cape region is probably the most, um, has the most uh, diverse biodiversity of any region in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's a, a, you know, a, a commitment to um, maintaining that. You know, it's not all about wine, but it's just about, sure. you know, what happens to be in that part of the world. Um, and then California was just starting its program, I think. Uh, Lodi rules existed, but so there was just some, a little bit happening in different parts of the world, but not a lot when I first started kind of trying to figure out what was going on in the space. Um, so it was fun just to go and identify who was doing something. Sure. And as I, the more I got into it, the more I discovered uh, that there was, and live, of course, live had been around mm -hmm. for a while. Um, even though the, at the time the organ industry was probably small, but live was, you know, pretty, was prominent. And 
still remains, I think, one of the most rigorous mm -hmm. sustainability um, certification programs out there. What did you see as the main threats? If, if wine didn't, didn't improve its sustainability, what were the threats to the industry? Well, you know, as, as I interviewed winemakers, I would ask them, you know, why the, the ones who were sustainable, mm -hmm. why are you doing this? And, and so for many of them, it was um, to preserve soil health. Mm -hmm. So if they didn't do it, you know, they were going to destroy the soil, the health of the soil, I think. Um, so that was, you know, to avoid soil degradation. Um, and also, um, you know, pesticide spray. So if, when I would meet with people in California, they would say, you know, the urban communities were moving more closer and closer to what was traditionally wine growing regions. And so there had never been any concern about spraying pesticides. But now people were living close by with children mm -hmm. and they were very concerned about what is all this spraying going to do to my child's health? Or they were identifying some, some issues, mm -hmm. uh, health challenges for their children. So I think that was more than anything, pesticides and spray was probably the biggest mm -hmm. uh, challenge. And then of course, drought. Sure. And the fact that, you know, there was in, you know, in Europe, uh, uh, vineyards don't irrigate by law. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed to irrigate. Um, it's just been traditional, you know. They're, they're very traditional about the vine finding what it needs deep, deep into the soil. Whereas in California, they irrigate it. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just, you know, I don't want to say it was just, you know, vineyards. Everybody irrigated. That was part of how California became such a breadbasket for the country and the world was because of water. Mm -hmm. And, you know, growth and water. And as drought, um, as we experience drought, in California, there were lots of dis water disputes and uh, the industry couldn't quite figure out, you know, how to produce without irrigating. Mm -hmm. And so I think those are some of the, the challenges that really push the industry into being sustainable. Mm -hmm. In Europe, um, there was obviously, you know, European consumers have been much more progressive in terms of environmental sustainability, both in terms of energy, social responsibility, um, and, you know, health, um, the contents of their food. Mm -hmm. And so in, um, in Germany and in the UK, a lot of consumers and retailers were questioning, you know, a lot of this. And so producers, especially in New Zealand, mm -hmm. uh, because they had their sights on those European markets, knew that they had to do something to position themselves and differentiate themselves sure. as an agricultural product. And that motivated them to develop a sustainable uh, strategy um, to appeal to the consumers, the uh, British consumers especially. So I'm, I'm curious, um, when, you, when you were thinking about sustainability in wine specifically, you're talking, you're talking a lot about environmental sustainability, but I'm assuming you're also talking about social sustainability and, and the, uh, the, the things you, you built your career on. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what your impressions were of the kind of the social status, or the, not status, but the social responsibility uh, of the wine industry at that yeah. time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it depends on the region, of course, again, but... Um, I mean, there was a, a scathing report done by Human Rights Watch mm -hmm. on labor conditions in the grape and fruit 
industries in South Africa. It was mm -hmm. horrible. I mean, even when I think about it now, just the images in the report, the kinds of things that they were doing in South Africa, uh, paying wine vineyard workers with brandy. Part of their compensation would be, you know, brandy. That's how they, they much they got paid. So that was a problem. And then um, often people's housing uh, in South Africa, in the vineyards in South Africa, their housing was attached to their work. So if they no longer worked for the vineyard or the winery, they no longer had a place to live. Mm -hmm. And so they were forced to, to stay there and work um, and take, you know, this very low compensation and, you know, no health care. So that was, that was an issue for me. And then even in, uh, in the U.S., in California, there were, there were some issues. You know, when I would meet with or talk to California producers, they would tell me that they outsourced their labor to these labor, these companies that would do the hiring and the recruiting, almost as if that um, relieved them of responsibility mm -hmm. for, you know, and, but typically they felt confident that these companies were doing the right thing. And by and large they were, but every now and then you'd have a horror story of how, how workers were being housed. Mm -hmm. um, and these aren't all migrant workers, you know, often people think, these are kind of seasonal labor, I mean. Mm -hmm. Some of them are people, maybe they came from Mexico uh, originally, but they, they live in these communities. Mm -hmm. But some of the housing was really, really bad. You know, no, um, no screens, mm -hmm. no air conditioning, you know, really poor conditions. Um, and some of these were very, you know, high-priced wineries in Napa. And you know, sometimes they didn't even know what was going on, but the, the companies that they outsourced the labor from um, weren't taking care. And so those are, those are some of the horror stories. Mm -hmm. um, but even beyond that, you know, what are, you know, I ask questions about how, what are, are we promoting um, uh, gender diversity mm -hmm. in wineries? That's part of sustainability, I mean, social responsibility. What are the opportunities for um, kind of field workers to be promoted. Um, what kind of health, are they getting the same level of health care that the owners of the winery get? Um, are they providing training um, about pesticide use mm -hmm. in Spanish mm -hmm. as well as in English? So yeah, those are some of the things that, that concerned me about the industry here in the United States. Um, and of course, you know, and, and, and as I mentioned, in South Africa as well. So what, what inspired you to write your book then on the, the business of sustainable wine? Well, I, um, as I said, I did my thesis and I couldn't find a lot that was written on this topic. I found some really good academic papers like, you know, how do we measure consumer interest in organic wine? It was quantitative, but it was not something that a producer could take and learn from. And I just felt like there needed to be uh, more information about what was going, what are the options and the potential for being sustainable for producers. But in addition, when I talk about the business of wine, I'm thinking also of distributors mm -hmm. and retailers and marketing to consumers. And so I also wanted to write the book for, for them because I feel like a choke point in the sustainability future for wine 
is distribution. Mm -hmm. Because just I found that not a lot of distributors were that interested in it and, and maybe didn't even understand it. Mm -hmm. So I wanted a book that was uh, educational but, um, but relatively easy to read with some case studies and good examples for both distributors, retailers, and producers. I mean, there's a lot of information available for growers who want to be sustainable, you know, in these regional programs. Mm -hmm. But I thought this was a book that would give them at least some ideas about what their options were if for new entrants to the industry. And have you felt like you've had success in that? Have you felt like people are taking away from your book what you were hoping they would take away? I do. I do feel like that. I mean, it's um, people are buying it and reading it. And um, so the book was published in July 2017. And so at first I thought, okay, and I did some interviews, you know, radio interviews and all that, uh, some print interviews. And it's really been this year, 2000, um, well, 2018, into 2018, 2019, I've been asked to speak. I'm on a, I'm kind of, I don't think, I don't call it a speaker circuit, but I'm speaking in regions around in New York with, uh, for importers and their audiences, mm -hmm. um, the Oregon Wine Symposium. Uh, I'll be speaking in Australia for their International Wine International Technical Conference. Cool. And I was in New Zealand last year speaking at their annual conference and I speak a lot about I mean obviously about what's going on around the world you know and what are the lessons to be learned mm -hmm. from the different sustainability programs but also how do we market this to consumers how do we educate consumers around sustainability um, the one thing I learned when I was at Starbucks is it's one thing for the company to be committed to sustainability and and investing in sustainability but as a business, we want that to be, we want to get repaid for that, right? Sure. Uh, we want consumers to be willing to buy those products, even if they're not paying a premium, for them to understand the value and to choose our product because it's sustainable over some other product. Um, and so that's what I think, um, that's a lot of what I talk about because mm -hmm. I want consumers to understand what it means for a wine to be sustainable and for them to support those winemakers who are investing in making wines that are sustainable mm -hmm. um, that also taste good. <laughs> uh, so, so I think it is having some, um, it's having some, some effect, definitely. Do you get the sense that, you're talking about kind of a, almost like a delayed reaction to your book, do you get the sense that the interest in sustainability is being driven more by consumers at this point or more by producers? Are producers wanting to do it because they want to do it or they want to do it because consumers are expecting it? Yeah, in the wine industry, I feel like uh, producers are wanting to do it. I mean, when I would interview uh, winemakers or winery owners, my first question was, you know, what motivated you to do this? And typically it's, this is a family business. I want, you know, I got it from my parents or grandparents. I want to make sure I can pass it on in good order, or if it was a new producer, they were already thinking about succession, you know, mm -hmm. and so it's so critical that they are good stewards of the land in order for this land to continue to produce for generations to come. Mm -hmm. um, many of them are personally 
committed to sustainability. They just have a personal feeling that this is the right thing to do. Um, others are doing it because they think it's a good marketing story. Um, so, but they're, they're motivated to do it. Um, the wine industry really hasn't gotten the kind of attention I described for the coffee, the protests mm -hmm. around, you know, fair trade. That just hasn't happened, with a few exceptions. It's starting to happen a bit. Um, in Sonoma, for example, communities are starting to um, rebel against more wineries. We don't want more wineries in our community. You know, it's, it's too much traffic, it's too noisy. You know, so there, in some communities, they are objecting to new licenses for wineries. Um, so, and then in France, there's been amazing um, outcry against pesticide use. Um, there's been a lot of, there was a, a documentary um, in, in France um, that the, the industry was like aghast about because they basically investigated um, the, it, a lot of it around Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. Bordeaux probably was using the most amount of uh, pesticides mm -hmm. and spraying just as a tradition. Mm -hmm. um, but there were a number of schools and school children who were living near uh, vineyards that were getting sick. Mm -hmm. uh, there were a couple of uh, uh, people who worked in uh, vineyards who became ill, had cancer, and sued their former, you know, wineries mm -hmm. uh, because of their illness. So I think there's um, there's starting to be some of this that's happening in the in the wine industry some of this kind of protest mm -hmm. and negative you know community outcry um, that that also is motivating some in the industry and then you know in some places like New Zealand as I said they were developing their sustainability program as an opportunity to position themselves in the markets in the European markets the UK market mm -hmm. and but then they use peer pressure to get others and they just basically said we want to be 100% sustainable in New Zealand. Uh, they set that to the entire wine industry. And if you don't participate, then we won't um, include your wines in wine competitions. Mm -hmm. We won't include your wines on Air New Zealand. I mean, they basically said, you can do whatever you like, but you know, they had some you know, prizes that they would give mm -hmm. for high quality wine and they basically would eliminate those who didn't come into the program. Um, and so it was the stick, you know, mm -hmm. peer pressure. Uh, so there are a number of ways in which, but it was probably the leadership of the industry mm -hmm. that was uh, promoting it. Interestingly, it's also the growers I discovered in my research um, in New Zealand, even in California, Lodi. So Lodi Rules is probably the grandfather of the sustainability mm -hmm. uh, certification programs. And Lodi was traditionally a, a growing region for wineries in other parts of the state. Mm -hmm. And they were, so it's the growers who have really pushed their customers, the wineries, to adopt sustainability because they are the ones that are exposed to the chemicals. It's their land, right? That they're trying to make sure they uh, keep for the future for their families in the future. So the growers have been really instrumental in this too. I'm wondering when you 
as a uh, in your current line with your with your current company, and when people come to you, do you feel like it's, it's one of the first things you do, sort of defining sustainability or coming to a common agreement on sustainability? I'm curious if there's a if you're finding a, a common understanding of what the term means, or if you're having to sort of define the term for each case. Yeah, there. Unfortunately, there is no uh, no common. I mean, I give them the you know what I think are you know common definitions. Um, for you know, but some of them are. I am able to help them understand kind of the difference between environmental sustainability and social responsibility. Um, so we can you know kind of work through some of those. Um, but you know, these days, um, it's you know there's there are a lot there's a lot happening in the world that really helps this. So mm -hmm. people are concerned about climate change. They're concerned about sea level rise. Mm -hmm. You know they are worried about you know weather changes, weather patterns, and hurricanes. And so people know something's happening in the world that's probably not, you know, so not so good. <laughs> and so many of them are trying to figure out what role, if any, are we playing in that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is just nowadays it's employment so a lot of I get calls from companies that say you know we need a signature giving program because I was interviewing all these young MBAs for this job and they kept asking me what's my signature giving program and I don't even know what that is or I don't have one and and so often my clients tend to be uh, a vice president of public affairs or environmental regulation mm -hmm. and it's the CEO who says, we need a sustainability program. Mm -hmm. The CEO's not really sure what that means, um, so he directs somebody you know, down below to get that going, and so they call me and say, help. So a lot of times it's strategy, it's kind of working with a team inside the company to, to determine what's our priorities. You know, what are the things we really absolutely need to work on in terms of environmental sustainability? You know, what are in our product mix, you know, what's the biggest threat? What's the biggest risk? A lot about risk, you know. It's not so much just, oh, let's do something good. It's really what where are our risks and how do we deal with those? The other thing that's happening is boards of directors of companies mm -hmm. are also starting to ask these questions. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's just, in the food and beverage space, it's consumers. Consumers want to know, what am I consuming? Mm -hmm. Is this healthy for me? Are you, you know, is there too much sugar in it? Is it, you know, or was it made with pesticides? You know, is organic better than... So I think consumers are definitely concerned about um, the food and the beverages they consume, and what's the provenance of some of those those items? Sure. Um, so that's how it happens. I noticed that in your example, the CEO is is, is a he. Uh, I'm curious about your experience as a, as a female CEO in, in the world. Well, I mean, I it there are it's increasing, fortunately, mm -hmm. and um, there are a lot. There's a lot of support for women entrepreneurs, which mm -hmm. is really great. Mm -hmm. uh, there are, you know, organizations that support women entrepreneurs. There are, you know, the Small Business Administration sponsors support for um, women business owners. Um, but it's not always, it, it's never easy. And it's never, I mean, I've been a trailblazer as an African-American woman. I've often been the only person in the room who looks like me. Um, so it's, you know, that's nothing new for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I just go in with my experience 
and here's what I have to offer you and you know and I don't think you're gonna find it I mean nowadays when I first started doing this there just weren't that many resources you know out there um, you know and I have a team a small team and I have a you know much larger group of other consultants I can draw on and nowadays there are lots of you know PR firms and law firms and you know accounting firms that offer sustainable uh, strategic advice mm -hmm. um, so there's more competition but but I think you know just our experience gives us a lot more credibility in the space but yeah it's not always easy as a as a female in a in a male world but that's been the story of my life pretty much <laughs> sure. in the corporate world sure. um, do you find that the, the obstacles you're dealing with in, in, from that regard are, are different with your sustainable business, international business in general versus the wine industry? Do you find there's a difference there? Or are you pretty much dealing with similar obstacles no matter what you're doing? Well, I think um, for, you know, if I think about, you know, corporate clients, and these tend to be often our companies that have diversity practices and diversity programs you know so a lot of the work that I do outside of the wine sector is for large companies mm -hmm. um, and so they are you know different in that regard because they are they tend to have more diverse um, senior teams and diverse staffs and certainly the people who work in uh, CSR and environmental sustainability often tend to be, there are a lot of women who work in that space, you know, which is great because their staff functions inside companies and often women end up in those, in those functions. Um, in the wine industry, I mean, there's just, there's not a lot of diversity in the wine industry at a certain level, you know, in terms of ownership and marketing. So I, I don't find it to be um, an impediment but it just, it is concerning. Mm -hmm. On that note, uh, I assume as a, as a kind of, a, you mentioned yourself as a trailblazer, uh, what are you doing to try to help the next generation of, of women and minorities uh, get into positions like yours? Yeah, I'm always, boy, I'm always mentoring. I've been, I mentor. <laughs> In fact, I'm giving a talk uh, next weekend to a group. It's a women, women's retreat, um, so I'm often, talking to um, women, to entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. uh, to young African Americans. I'm in a group called the International Women's Forum and they have chapters in cities all over the world and they have, I think there's a chapter in Oregon as well. Um, and we have, a, we have a, a really an organized mentorship program mm -hmm. where we mentor um, other, typically it's mid-career women who are, who want to break through to that next level. Um, and then I spend a lot of time with university students. I teach a course. Um, each semester I've been teaching a course um, at a university in Pittsburgh, Chatham University. A mm -hmm. um, lot of young women. It's no longer women only, but um, so I end up doing mentoring and you know doing independent studies and helping young women mm -hmm. who are at the university level think through their career choices. So we've talked a lot about a lot of different wine regions because you obviously have a familiarity with a lot of wine regions. Well, let's talk a little bit about Oregon specifically. Uh, and I'm curious about uh, your impressions of Oregon wine, not being inside the Oregon wine industry, but your impressions of the industry from the outside and, and what your initial impressions were and kind of how they may have changed. Well, um, first of all, I love Oregon wine. <laughs> 
I was living in Seattle. You know, it's, um, I didn't know, I described how I got into wine as a consumer and an enthusiast. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew a lot of, I've known a lot about European wines. And obviously I mentioned South African wines. So, and a lot about French wines, mm -hmm. but I didn't know a lot about American wines. Mm -hmm. And uh, until I moved to Seattle, and that was an opportunity for me to travel on the West Coast, and to, I came to Oregon often, I'd go to Walla Walla, Washington often, and I started collecting wines for this. So I had a great admiration for the wines, mm -hmm. just from you know, the taste of the wines, I had my favorites. Um, and then I started to understand sustainability. So Oregon was, was intriguing to me because Oregon in general is so committed to sustainability, not just the wine industry. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I love that. And living in, in Seattle, I knew, I knew that. I mean, this region, I think, the Pacific Northwest, but Oregon in, in particular, uh, had a real commitment to sustainability. And the wine industry was no, no different. And, um, and then when I studied the live uh, program, the low input in viticulture and enology program, I was really struck by how rigorous it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, I, and at the time I thought, it's probably easier to be this rigorous when you're small. You know, when I would speak to um, the counterpart in uh, California at the Wine Institute, uh, their you know, certified California sustainable wine, it's not, it wouldn't be as, it was never gonna be as easy for them to be as rigorous because it's such a large industry and so widespread. Um, so I'm impressed by that and I just hope that that continues as the industry grows mm -hmm. and as new investors and new entrants come into this uh, you know, market in this region, I hope that they will come in and adopt you know, these same uh, sustainability commitments sure. that have always existed here. Sure. So you mentioned that as a, as a potential obstacle uh, down the road uh, with, with the rapid growth and with the uh, growing outside investments. Uh, are there other obstacles you see uh, as Oregon moves towards the same way? Obviously, uh, live is a, is a big push. Uh, biodynamic now is a, is a big mm -hmm. deal here in mm -hmm. Oregon. Uh, are there obstacles in the road as the industry is growing, uh, if trying to stay, sustain, stay sustainable? Um, well, of course there could be, yeah. And I think probably um, the, the, the proponents of sustainability, uh, the people who work in live, the board of directors of live, probably need to be much more integrated with the business. Um, you know, it's not for me to say I'm from the outside, but be great for um, just to, you know, so that they understand how important um, this, this approach to sustainability can be mm -hmm. to the business. Um, so that's, I think that could be an obstacle, but for any, any region or any uh, group of wineries that are committed to sustainability, the obstacle is educating the consumer mm -hmm. and educating the retailer mm -hmm. um, on, because you know, consumers, can be, you know, I'm a firm believer in, in the power of marketing. And, you know, I think marketing ought to be authentic, you know, and not greenwashing, but marketers have a, an amazing power to persuade uh, consumers of their way of thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, they just identify what's the, what's the consumer need. That's what marketers do. And then how can we fulfill that need? Um, and what, you know, and now consumers are much more concerned about 
purpose and value. And I think sustainability can be that purpose, uh, but it takes marketers positioning it in that way for, mm-hmm. for uh, consumers. And, and the wine industry has to be much better at marketing. You know, it's not enough just to put your wine on the shelf um, or change the label for millennials. <laughs> you know, it's gotta be really, and that's hard. But I think it's, uh, it's important that other companies have gone through these kind of generational transitions. Um, and I think the wine industry is gonna have to do that. And not just Oregon, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, everybody's gotta do that. The French, the, when I talked about Bordeaux, they've gotta figure out how they're gonna get the next generation interested in their wines. Mm-hmm. Um, they're expensive. You know, they're, you know, are, what are they, what need are they fulfilling for the, the younger, the millennial consumer? Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's gonna be the marketers that's gonna help them make that. Both translate what they're doing for consumers, but also translate back to the wineries what consumers want and need. Mm-hmm. And that's a big obstacle. A big obstacle. Yeah. So based on your experience and your interaction with Oregon wine industry, what are your, what do you think of the attitudes in the industry, of the people in the industry towards sustainability? Um, Oh, I think it's, in Oregon, it's Mm -hmm. tremendous. Mm -hmm. It's great. I mean, when I've talked to people, when I've given presentations, uh, there's been a lot of interest and a lot of support. I think there's still, people are still trying to figure out organic versus biodynamic versus sustainable, you know, which one they should be doing. It's sometimes it's personal preferences, it's, it's personal values and commitments. You know, organic wine now is finally very popular with consumers and so, you know, producers are trying to figure out, well, should I be organic or should I be sustainable? Um, I, so those are the ki- exactly the kind of dilemmas I'd like to see them grappling with, because mm-hmm. all of those are, are good choices for the future of the planet, for you know, consumers, but I think that's, that's what's happening right now. Sure. So what's next for you? Uh, you've, uh, you've been on quite a journey to where you are now. What do you see as you look five, 10 years in the future for you and your business? Well, um, to, in terms of wine, I'd like to write another book. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd really like to do a sustainable guide for consumers. Ooh, that'd be really cool. Yeah, because yeah. I think, you know, I've been talking a lot about, you know, getting consumers and marketing to consumers and just, you know, showing consumers how to make a choice around sustainable. Where's, what, what's happening in the world of, of sustainability in wine and what are some great wines to choose from from lots of different price points. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of what, that's something I'd like to do. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the business, there's still so much out there. I mean, as much, as I, as much progress as I've seen among companies, mm-hmm. uh, there's still so many companies that have not, just still haven't figured it out, you know? They want to figure, fortunately, they're all trying to, they're thinking about it and they want to figure it out, but there's still so many companies that are just trying to do like, you know, recycling in the building, better light bulbs, you know, designated parking for, you know, low emission vehicles. They still have not taken on the challenge of figuring out how they reorganize their business, Mm -hmm. their manufacturing and their supply chain 
in a sustainable way. So there's still a lot to be done mm -hmm. in that in that space. So, do you find that uh, all your clients are coming to you at this point, or do you actually seek out companies that you think need your services? Um, it kind of varies and it kind of fluctuates. So sometimes when I first left Starbucks, there was just you know business coming to me. Um, Interesting, now I'm starting to get um, some interest from big wine retailers mm -hmm. in thinking through what do we do with all these various sustainability certifications? You know, we're not sure which ones are valid, which ones are greenwashing. So they're coming to me, which is great, because that's really, that's something I, I really want to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I do, I like I'm going to a big uh, green business conference in the next month or so uh, where there'll be lots of companies there and you know it's an opportunity just to talk to people and let them know what I'm doing and you know what so I have to do some marketing of course sure. you know yeah so it's all the questions that I have prepared for you uh, is there anything I should have asked anything else you'd like to add here at the end or no I think you you did a great <laughs> job you covered it <laughs> okay well excellent well thank you so much for your time and for your candor we really really appreciate it and uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook okay great thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our projects a success be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.